Morning, guys. Hope you're doing well. Happy Sunday. Great to be together, and I just want to extend my welcome to you if you're here as a visitor. It's so great to have you here, and my name's Phil. I'm part of the leadership team here, and it's really great to welcome you here at the end of a week of prayer, which has been absolutely fantastic. I've absolutely loved this week of prayer. It's been so, so brilliant, and um, some of my heroes were the guys that were up from 12 a.m. till 12 p.m. Is it a.m. or p.m.? Midnight. That one. They were up at midnight till seven in the morning. One of them was Tim Burns. Is Tim here? Just stand up. Just quickly stand up and just wave. This man right here. And a few other hardy souls were praying for seven hours straight. Tim was playing the keyboards for most of that seven hours. His fingers were bleeding at the end of them. We resurrected him after seven hours of intense prayer and worship. And... Um, Anyway, it was, it was so, so good, so, so good. And if you didn't get a chance to join us this time, we, we do a thirst kind of week of prayer every term, and uh, you'll be hearing more about those that are coming up together soon. So if you've got a Bible, you might like to turn to Acts and chapter 11, and we are going to read. Um, if you're not sure what one of these is, this is a, a Bible that's in book form. Um, it doesn't swipe up or down, but you can go right and left. So... <laughs> I did hear about one parent who took, took their kid to someone's house and they picked up like Time magazine and they started trying to swipe up. But, but of course you can't do that. So uh, we are in a series in the book of Acts, which for those of you who are just joining us, Acts is a breathtaking story about the first church, the early church, the church just after the resurrection of Jesus. And it's a breathtaking account over about 30 years of what happens when the Holy Spirit falls on God's people and begins to change the known world. And so we are looking at what lessons we can learn and what God has to say to us in this series. And last week we began to look at the first outbreak of the gospel from really its Jewish context and enclave in Jerusalem, suddenly like this fire leaping out of Jerusalem and into the lives of non-Jews. And Cornelius, a centurion, a Roman soldier, was the first Gentile really to receive Jesus and start following him. And from that one man and his household saying yes to Jesus, the gospel starts to spread right across the non-Jewish world as well. And so that's where we're going to pick the story up right now. So Acts chapter 11, and we're just going to dive into verse 19, which says this. Now those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only amongst Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus." So this is what happens immediately after Cornelius and his household get saved and start following Jesus. Some believers that had been pushed out of Jerusalem because of fear of their lives suddenly find themselves in Cyprus and think, well, where better to go to talk about Jesus than Antioch? Now, Antioch was one of the most influential cities in the Roman Empire. Um, Forbes magazine, every year, it rates the most influential cities on the planet. And currently, the top three spots are occupied, number one, by London. I felt quite proud of that. London. Number two, not Bedford, New York. New York. And number three, 
Paris. Correct. So Forbes says that these, these are the three most influential cities on our planet right now. London, New York, and Paris. And Antioch really occupied the position that Paris now occupies. It was the third most influential city on the whole planet at the time. Behind Rome and Alexandria, you had Antioch. It was a thriving city. About half a million people lived in Antioch. It was a very cosmopolitan city. There were lots of different languages spoken. There was lots of trade coming in and out. It was a place of high commerce. Lots of businesses were being started. It was growing. It was that kind of place. That's Antioch. And so these believers who've been pushed out of Jerusalem suddenly find themselves in the third most influential city on the whole darn planet. And they think, what better to do here than tell people about Jesus? <laughs> that's what we're here for. And so that's what we find happening here. And, you know, don't you love it that God actually knows what he's doing? You ever kind of thanked God that he knows what he's doing? You know, the enemy thinks, I'm just going to kick these Christians out of Jerusalem. But actually, God had another plan, which was, I'm going to get these guys into the third most influential city on the planet so they can talk about Jesus. Because if this city gets it, the whole world could get it. And so that's what starts happening right here. And Antioch, alongside Jerusalem and later Ephesus, became the three major centers of gospel advance in the New Testament. They in themselves became massive churches, massive centers of church mission and church planting and kingdom expansion. And they were the three most influential churches in Scripture. And we know that even three centuries later from this moment, the church in Antioch was still growing. And literally, there were hundreds of thousands of people in this church three centuries after the story that we've just read about. It was a thriving, thriving church community. And one of the reasons I believe that they became such an influential church center is that they had two things going on. Firstly, they had the fire of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, they had great foundations for that fire to come upon. They had fire, but they had foundations. Both are critical if we are to be the kind of church that doesn't go from boom to bust, but goes from glory to glory. You need fire and you need foundations. Both are important. This is what one theologian said about this, using the analogy of a fire in a fireplace. Charles Hummel says, we must have the fire. Amen? We must have the fire. But if it is to be productive rather than destructive, it must exist in the fireplace. It does no good to have the fire burning in the living room out of control. Neither is the answer a dead hearth with embers. Paul's counsel to the Corinthians was to do everything, fire, decently and in order, fireplace. But let us remember that the fireplace exists to serve the fire and not the other way around. I love that. It's so helpful, that quote. The fireplace exists for the fire. The foundations that we lay in our own lives and in the life of church community is for God himself. It's for his presence. It's for the fire of his presence among his people. And this church in Antioch really got these two things right. And so firstly, let's just look at fire. As we read on in the story, verse 21, this is what we read. And this is such an important phrase, verse 21. It says, the Lord's hand was with them. Just take note of that phrase. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The Lord's hand was with them. This is the first thing we notice about Antioch. God's there. Now, shouldn't that be the first thing that people encounter when they encounter church? God's there. 
there's something about you lot that makes me think God's here. <laughs> like, you look fairly ordinary. You look just like me. But there is something extraordinary going on here. God must be here. God's hand must be upon you. This is more than just a bunch of people getting together to sing nice songs. I mean, you know you can do that anywhere, right? You know, there's some great choirs in Bedford. There's some great places you can go and sing songs. But the thing that marks us out as different is that God is among us. We are a people of his presence, his power. And that phrase, the hand of the Lord, is so laden with meaning in Scripture. The writer of Psalm 89, he says this, Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand is exalted. There is something about the hand of the Lord which connotates his power, his protection, his provision, his supply, something that comes from heaven to earth. The Lord's hand is upon them. And therefore, this church begins to prosper and thrive. It's so, so critical. And I don't know if you've ever stopped to wonder, how big is God's hand? (laughs) I mean, is that in Isaiah it says, he measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. Have you ever kind of stopped to look out on an ocean with that picture in your mind? God measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. That's how big his hand is. Or in Isaiah 40, he says, God measures the stars with the breadth of his hand. Just, just, just look at your hand, just for a moment. The breadth of your hand, how much can you measure? Well, this is what God measures with the breadth of his hand. He measures the stars. That's a big hand right there. He measures the stars. I mean, just how many of you are kind of enthusiastic amateur astronomers here? Okay, how many of you know what Orion's belt is? How many of you need to go home and do some homework? (laughs) Some of you, yes. So Orion's belt, it's this strip of three stars that you can often see in the English sky at night. And it's three very bright stars next to one another. Now, Orion's belt, it's, it's you know, one of the nearest stars to us, actually. But one of those stars, the nearest one of those stars, is 736 light years away. 736 light years. That's the nearest one of those stars in Orion's belt. Now, bear in mind that one light year is 5.9 trillion miles. 5.9 trillion miles is one light year. And the nearest one of those stars is 736 light years away. And God just effortlessly measures them with the breadth of his hands. And the writer to the Acts says, and the Lord's hand was with them. Let me tell you, if God's hand is with you, nothing can stop you. When when God's hand is on a community, I mean, the enemy can throw whatever he wants at that people, but nothing is stopping God at work in those people. And that is the story of Antioch. God's hand was on them. And therefore the gospel just starts to spread right throughout that city. And that should be our prayer. That should be our expectation. God, put your hand upon us. Fill this fireplace with your fire. Let us experience the provision that comes from heaven. You know, it said of the early religious leaders with the disciples in Acts 4, it says, when they saw the disciples, they saw that they were ordinary, unschooled men, but that they had been with Jesus. <laughs> you know, there should be, that story should be told of us. You guys are so ordinary, but I can tell you've been with Jesus because more is happening than should happen. <laughs> 
more is going on. You are much more fruitful. You are much more joyful. You are much more full of peace than you should be. You look just like me, but there is something different. You must have been with Jesus. <laughs> Do people say that about your life? Well, that's what they said about these early believers. The Lord's hand is with you. This is more than just great organization, good programs, and comfy chairs to sit on on a Sunday morning. The Lord's hand, the Lord's hand, fire. And that's why the story of the early church is this just kind of rampant, runaway train story of God just moving so quickly. People are just running to catch up with what he is doing. You know, so often we try and create programs in order to produce life. But it was the opposite way in the New Testament. The life came first, and then they had to catch up and get some programs. That, that's how it happens. 3,000 suddenly get birthed into the kingdom in Acts chapter 2. And then they think, heck, we better do some organization. We need some small groups here. We need, someone needs to teach these guys. We need some discipleship. There needs to be some leadership. We need to do something. But it was the life that actually came first. Because the fireplace exists for the fire and not the other way around. You know, and that's why one theologian says this, that the divine imperative in the whole New Testament, meaning the greatest command or instruction, is Ephesians 5.18, which says, don't get drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Greek tense that's used in that particular passage is the present continuous tense, which doesn't mean be filled with the Spirit once and then live life as you were before. It says, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is not meant to be an event. It's meant to be a lifestyle. You are a people of the Holy Spirit. You're a people of His presence. You're a people of the Lord's hand. You're a people under His guidance upon your life. You know, I remember the first time that I was really filled with the Holy Spirit, and I was 12 years old at the time. I, I started to follow Jesus at the age of six, but it wasn't really until six years later that I had my first encounter with the Holy Spirit. And I was at a youth weekend one evening, and someone offered to pray for those who wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I hardly think I understood what he was talking about, to be honest, but I went forward because I knew that I wanted more of God. And so I remember going forward and a couple of friends prayed for me. And to be honest, nothing dramatic happened whatsoever. There were no shakes or wobbles or bells or whistles or angels or strange mystical winds or visions from heaven. None of that happened. It was a very quiet prayer. Please come and fill, 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 fill with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> And I said, amen. I kind of received their prayer and I went home. And I, I went home to my, the chalet where I was staying. And I was like, God, I wonder what you've done. I wonder if anything's changed. But man, waking up the next day, I felt like a different person. I mean, it's like all the lights suddenly been turned on on the inside. And I, I found that before where I'd been very timid, for example, in worship, I'd be kind of the hands-in-the-pocket guy at the back, kind of looking rather embarrassed, not wanting to be heard singing. Suddenly, I just thought... I've just got this exploding joy within me. I cannot help but sing and worship. Suddenly something's starting to erupt within me. And I knew I am different because of the Holy Spirit. I'm not the man I was yesterday. Something's changed. 
Suddenly there was a life, there was a, a light from heaven. I began to hear God, feel joy, want to share my faith with my friends. And that's what happens when you live life under the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit, when the Lord's hand is upon you. Go on being filled with the Spirit. My challenge to some of you is this. I wonder if you've become too content with having a great fireplace, but no fire. Where's the fire in your life? Do people still rub up against you in your daily life and say, I don't know what it is, but there is just something different about you? Are they saying that? Because I think they should. I want people to think that when they come into contact with me. I want there to be something that causes them to stop and say, what is it about you? <laughs> What's going on? So that then we can give an account for our faith. This is him. This is Jesus. This is his work. This is the fire of his presence. You know, and the reality is when God's hand starts to rest upon a community, nothing the enemy can do can halt what God has started. I mean, just take China as a great example of that truth. China right now is a nation under the hand of God. 150 years ago, there were hardly any known Christian believers in the nation of China, which caused a very brave man by the name of Hudson Taylor make it his prayer, God, will you send people to China? That was his prayer. He used to live in Sussex. He used to walk up and down Brighton Beach. And there's this famous occasion where he was walking up and down that pebbly beach in Brighton saying, God, would you send workers to China? Because China was the great unreached people group of his generation. And a little bit like Jerusalem, it's like the enemy had tried to put up a massive wall around China. You're not getting in here, God. But Hudson Taylor started to go to war in prayer. God, send workers. Send workers. Reach China. Come to that nation. Send your fire. And slowly, slowly, God began to call men and women to move to China. And 150 years later, there is probably the greatest move of the Holy Spirit history has ever seen in the nation of China right now. In the year 1970, the leader of China tried to eradicate Christianity. At the time, there were 2.7 million believers in China in the year 1970. And the leader at the time tried to wipe out any expression of Christianity in that nation. Now, a conservative estimate says there are 75 million Christian believers in the nation of China. And that's a conservative estimate. One writer, a former Communist Party member, an atheist who got converted through reading the Bible, he says this about one particular part of China. He says, if you go to Haydan Church, you'll find yourself in more than a 100-meter line trying to get inside and worship every weekend. In Shenzhen, there are usually an average of 500 people being baptized every Sunday. 30,000 people come to follow Jesus every day in China. 150 years ago, Hudson Taylor's praying, God, send the fire to China. And what is the biggest emerging superpower of our generation? China. It's almost like God knew what he was doing. <laughs> What's the nation that's going to have greatest influence on the economy and the culture in this next 50 to 100 years? China. Where did God decide to start the biggest spiritual revolution that we've ever seen? China. <laughs> 
See, when God starts something, there's nothing that you can do to stop it because the Lord's hand is there. I mean, just take Indonesia. Indonesia is the biggest Muslim nation in the whole world. In the last 40 years, the number of Christian believers has gone from 1.3 million to over 13 million. Time magazine said what is happening in Indonesia right now can only be considered a spiritual revolution. (laughs) Another pastor in Bedford told me this story a year or so ago. And he told this story of these uh, pastors he'd been working with in a very, very dangerous nation to be a Christian in. And there have been these two Islamic terrorists who had, with their sect, with their particular kind of group of terrorists, they'd gone into a particular Christian church. They'd kind of done a lot of damage. They'd sprayed a lot of bullets. They'd harmed a lot of people, and then they ran into the hills. But two of these guys, as they're hiding in the hills, both of them have dreams in the night where Jesus appears to them in the middle of the night. And unbeknownst to one another, they start praying secretly and asking if Jesus is real. And eventually they find one another in this Islamic sect and they discover that they're both seeking after Jesus. So much so that they both decide to give their lives to him and go back to the church and ask for their forgiveness. And so they, le- they sneak out of their mountain, out of their hiding cave, and they go back to the church where they'd sprayed bullets just a few months earlier. And they ask for forgiveness from the Christian believers in that community. And they received forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? And then after a few weeks of being in that Christian community, they said, we cannot stay here anymore. We have to go back to our sect and tell them about Jesus as well. Please give us Bibles. And the Christians said, well, if you do that, you're going to die. They're like, not only are we willing to die, Jesus saved us for this purpose, to share him. Let me tell you, when the hand of the Lord is upon you, nothing can stop what God has started. We need the fire of the Holy Spirit. We need his presence. What if the fire of God's presence came on the church in this nation in such a way that nothing the enemy could do could stop it? God, would you do that again in our generation? Would you send the fire? Would you put your hand upon us? Would you call a people who are going on being filled with the Spirit every day so that people look at us and say, you must have been with Jesus? Father, we pray, make us like Antioch. Just put a hand on the shoulder of someone you're sitting next to right now. Father, make us a church like Antioch. Make us a church that has the fire. God, we don't just want to do things decently and in order. We also want the fire. We want the presence. We want your nearness. We want the mark that you're among us, that we are God's people marked out to change this planet by your love. We say, come, Holy Spirit, come on us again, like you're coming in China, like you're coming in Indonesia. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, look upon our nation with mercy. We say, come, Spirit of God, let the fire of God fall on the church afresh. Father, we pray right now for every church in Bedford and in Milton Keynes and in our county of Bedfordshire. We say, come, Holy Spirit, come. We pray for a fresh move of your hand. We pray, Lord, this hand that measures the stars, let it rest on the church. Father, come. Lord, I pray for Woodside Church. Come upon them in the name of Jesus. God, we pray for Three Rivers Church. Come on them in the name of Jesus. Father, I pray for Bromham Baptist. Come on them in the name of Jesus. God, we pray, come on All Nations Church. Come on them in the name of Jesus. Every church in this town, in this area that 
professes the name of Jesus, we ask fresh fire in the name of Jesus. God, make us a sign and a wonder of what can happen when God comes to a community. We say, come, do great and unsearchable things. Do things that no eye has seen and no ear has heard. Do things, Father, that only you could do, that we could never conjure up, even with our best music, best PowerPoints, best presentations. Do something only Jesus could do. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. We need the fire. Amen. But we also need the foundations. And that's one of the beautiful things in this church in Antioch is that they had the sense of God's nearness, but they also worked hard on creating the right environment in which God could unpack his suitcase and stay for a very long time. Because so much of the history of the church has been boom and bust. I've seen lots of churches boom and then bust. Because they haven't paid attention to the kind of foundation that the fire is meant to exist in. There been many moves of God through the centuries where God seems to have swept through. And there's been great activity of the Holy Spirit. And then it all just seems to shrink or disappear again. And so often what's happening there is the issue of fireplace, foundations. And we love to focus on the fire because fire is exciting. And often laying foundations is really boring. But you need the foundations. You've got to have the foundations. And that's what happens here because the church in Jerusalem, the apostles hear what is happening in Antioch and they think this is so significant, a work of God, that we have to go and put foundations in. And this is what we read next in Acts eleven twenty-two. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem and so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That's a 120-mile round trip on a donkey over mountains. And when he found them, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The apostles realized the fire needs a fireplace in Antioch. So we're going to send some guys who can build a great fireplace, who can lay some great foundations. And so Barnabas and Saul, who was later to become Paul, I know it's confusing, some of them had two names, Barnabas and Saul start teaching for a whole year what it looks like to be in Christ, who we are as the people of God. And how many of you know that laying foundations is often a very deliberate, intentional, gritty business? It, it just is. The, uh, the highest building in Dubai has a 164-foot foundation under the surface. 164 feet underground. That's 59,000 cubic yards of concrete, which is 120,000 tons, was poured into the foundation of that particular building. It took a year just to put the concrete in. A year. And really, that's a picture of what Paul and Barnabas are doing in Antioch. They're taking a year to pour in concrete. (laughs) You know, and we love the glamour of the fire, but you also need a great foundation. 
And Jesus said, if you don't have a deep foundation in your life, he told this parable of the sower. It said the kingdom is like a, a sower going out to sow seed. And the seed is the word of God. And sometimes the seed falls on ground that is very shallow or very thorny. And he says, the birds come and pluck away those seeds and carry them off. And he said, that is like people who receive Jesus and immediately have great joy, but because they don't have a deep root, as soon as trouble or persecution comes, they wilt away and they stop following Jesus. He said, that's what it's like when you have lots of fire, but no foundation. And so this issue of what kind of foundation is the fire meant to exist in is absolutely critical. And Scripture doesn't tell us exactly on this occasion what they spent their year teaching about. But we know from the Apostle Paul's writings the sort of things he taught about in a lot of the churches that he worked in. And the interesting thing, firstly, is that the foundation that the fire is meant to rest in is the foundation of God's Trinitarian nature. Just say Trinitarian to the person sitting next to you. That that felt good, didn't it? Didn't you feel more intelligent just by saying that? (laughs) Trinitarian. Okay? The foundation that... Paul and Barnabas were keen to lay in the church was the foundation of this is what God is like, therefore this is what you're to be like. God actually is the foundation stone. It's him. And it was A.W. Tozu who said, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. So here's the question. What are you thinking about God? Don't just say God's amazing. Learn to say some amazing things about God. Learn what his character is like. Learn who he is. Learn his nature. What kind of person is God? Because that actually is the pattern for the foundations in the church. I remember this, what was nearly a, an amazingly heavenly moment for us as a family when Lauren, my daughter, was just three years old. And she was in the back of the car. Carol and I were in the front. And suddenly, out of the blue, she said, Mommy, Daddy, Jesus lives in my heart. We were like, this is amazing. We've been praying for this. She's only three. Wow. And so we started to just celebrate in the, in the front of the car. I've got Jesus in my heart. And then that was quickly followed up by, and I've also got the Easter bunny in my heart too. <laughs> we kind of tried to brush that off. And then she said, and the Easter bunny is about to come out of my ears. <laughs> and a, a heavenly moment quickly turned into a very comical moment. You know, What you think about God is the most important thing about you. And we had a revelation in that moment that for Lauren, at that moment, Jesus was on a par with the Easter Bunny. But Paul, when he's working in amongst churches, he is laying a foundation of this is what God's like. Therefore, this is who you're to be. This is how you're to act. This is how you're to prioritize your lives. And when Paul is writing to one particular church in Corinth about foundation laying, In 1 Corinthians 3, he uses this language of building and the Trinitarian nature of God. Verse 9, he says to them, you are God's field, God's building. In verse 11, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And verse 16, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? Do you see the language that he's using there? He's saying, listen, you are God's field. You belong to the Father. The foundation stone is Jesus Christ. And you are now temples of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit. This is who you are. You are a spiritual temple rooted on the very nature of God himself. 
And that is the only sure foundation for the fire to rest in. Something that is patterned on the nature of God. (laughs) This is the way that we've tried to summarize the apostolic foundation that we're trying to lay in this church and the churches that we're working with. Firstly, we want to create churches that know the Father. It's number one. We want to establish in every church foundations of relationship to the Father, our identity as his children and being fully devoted to him. That's the upward foundation. It's about him. Who are you in Christ? We are a family devoted to God. That's foundation number one. Foundation number two, we want to develop spirit-shaped cultures. That's the inward dimension. We are a family on a mission together. We want to build relational cultures where we're actually friends feels important to me. Does that feel important to you? The, the church is not just a gathering. We're friends. We're family. It's a relational culture. That's who the Holy Spirit is. He's a relational God. We build a culture where he is welcome to turn up. And then thirdly, we extend Christ's kingdom. It's the outward dimension of our foundation. We want to multiply the kingdom into every area of society. We want to make the kind of disciples who believe they were born to change the world. I mean, I could get excited about those three things. I don't know about you. Father, Son, Spirit. Father, culture, kingdom. Now, again, I remember Lauren, when she was a bit older than the Easter Bunny story. She uh, was at one of our conferences here at the King's Arms. And Carol was at home in bed. The conference was going on late. You know, we had one of those visiting speakers where sometimes the the meetings go on past the scheduled allotted finish time. It was one of those evenings because God was just doing all sorts of stuff. And I remember watching Lauren. She was kind of in her kind of mid-teens at the time. And I could just see that God was powerfully meeting with her that night. And for a lot of the night, she was laying on the floor somewhere down here, sometimes crying, sometimes laughing. You just see God was on her. God was doing something. And she got off the floor and she came over to me and she said, Dad, I just love Jesus. He is so amazing. And what she also realized as she was meeting with God, she'd had neck pain for many, many months and just instantly it evaporated in the presence of God. She'd had this encounter with the Holy Spirit that had just radically changed her. And I remember texting Carol that night. I said, you better get up if you're asleep because Lauren's going to want to talk when she gets home. And so I remember we got home. Lauren sat on the edge of the bed and for an hour she just preached to us about the goodness of God. And she's like, you don't, you don't know how good God is. He's so full of love. He met me. I'm never going to be the same again. She'd had an encounter with these first two foundations. She'd met the Father and she'd had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And so what's the very next logical conclusion from those two things? How can I extend the kingdom? (laughs) If that's not the question that you come out with after an encounter with God, you maybe want to ask a few questions. But she's like, okay, I've got to tell someone about Jesus. How am I going to do that? And so she went into her school, talked to her RE teacher that next week, and said, Miss, could you give me an RE lesson to take? Because I love to tell people about Jesus. And to her surprise, the RE teacher said, okay, I'll give you 10 or 15 minutes. And so her and her friends, they got PowerPoints, they got video presentations, they did interviews. I mean, they had the whole works. And in the end, they took the whole of the RE lesson. They gave a response for salvation. They were praying for people in the lesson. They asked the teacher, can we have a separate room to pray for healing? And the teacher says, 
sure, I'll give you a classroom. You can open it at break time, invite anyone you want in, and you can just pray for those who need healing. Because that's what happens when you encounter a foundation that's full of fire. You meet the Father, you encounter the Spirit, and you want to extend the name of Jesus. That is an apostolic foundation. And that's what we're trying to build here in this community. And then lastly, I think it's important to say that although foundations can be a gritty business, because often it's about sometimes getting rid of the junk that doesn't match up to what God looks like. Sometimes it's relaying foundations that are a bit off or a bit faulty. I remember Carol telling me that newly... Newly saved as a 16-year-old, she had come out of a uh, you know, non-Christian household. And so after she came to Christ, she still swore like a trooper. And it wasn't until several months later that someone said to her, do you know what, actually the language coming out of God's mouth isn't like the language coming out of your mouth. Maybe you should change the way you talk. She's like, really? No one told me that. Thank you so much. So she changed. That's the work of foundations. You're shifting, you're changing according to what God is like, what he loves. And sometimes that can be a gritty business. I think it's important to remember that on the heavenly side of the equation, foundation laying is incredibly beautiful in the eyes of God. You know, those messy moments of your life, you think, gosh, this just doesn't feel very full of fire right now. On the heavenly side of the equation, God is building something beautiful out of our lives. He's building something spectacular. And we get this incredible picture in the book of Revelation, what the city of God looks like. And the city of God is a picture of the church. It's a picture of you and me. We're described as a city. And Revelation says this city has foundations. And in fact, it says it has 12 foundations. It's symbolic of completeness. And Revelation gives this little glimpse what those foundations are like. It says these foundations are built with 12 incredibly precious gems and jewels. Here's a picture of some incredibly precious gems and jewels. And it says that's what the foundations of the city of God is like. It's incredibly breathtakingly beautiful. Now here's the thing about the jewels. The 12 jewels mentioned in the book of Revelation chapter 21. They are all anisotropic jewels. Yeah, You get two types of jewels in the world. You get isotropic and anisotropic. Isotropic jewels like diamonds, when you shine pure, brilliant white light through a diamond, it goes completely black on the other side. And most gems in the world are like that when you shine pure, brilliant light through. Yet the 12 gems mentioned in the book of Revelation are all anisotropic gems which means that when you shine pure, brilliant white light through them, they dazzle with the colours of the rainbow. I mean, John is just writing down what he sees. Little did he know that he was writing down the 12 gems, and there's only 12, that when you shine light through them, they dazzle with the colours of the rainbow. And that's why Ephesians 3.10, Paul says, the wisdom of God, the many-coloured wisdom of God, has now been made known through the church. You are God's demonstration of his dazzling, multicolored, brilliant beauty. Foundations is a beautiful work. It glorifies God. He is building a city where he dwells. Amen. Why don't we stand together and let's pray.
Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. We love you, Jesus. Why don't you just close your eyes where you are. We're going to take a moment just to respond to him. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The fireplace exists for the fire, not the other way around. Yet even building the fireplace is a heavenly and beautiful business. God, we want to pray that you would make our church like Antioch. Pray you'd make us a center of your activity. Thank you for all that you're doing across our community. Thank you for 60 missional community groups. Thank you for the gospel going to Bedford Prison. Thank you for our young people meeting with you week after week. Lord, thank you for those that are hearing about Jesus every week on Alpha. God, thank you for the way that you're moving in our workplaces. Thank you for what you're doing in our families. Lord, thank you for 200 children coming here on Sunday mornings. God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you're doing. But God, we say, would you keep sending the fire? Keep sending the fire. We long for your presence. We long for your presence, Lord. Make us a sign and a wonder to the rest of the world of what happens when God takes center stage. Come, come. So often we try and contain what God's doing rather than sustain what God's doing. Why don't you just make it your prayer, God? Don't just start a work in me. Let it continue. Let it grow. Let it blow. Let, your, let the fire blaze hotter than it's ever blazed before. Come upon me, Holy Spirit, in a fresh way. Just all across this room, wherever you are, why don't you lift your hands? If you're hungry for a fresh touch of His presence, just say, God, send the fire. Send the fire. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Sura ba ba ba.